The gospel reading for tonight is from John chapter 6, verses 60 through 69. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The word of the Lord. So, I've been spending the last month trying to get to like John. You know, like, give the guy a chance. He was dealing with some tough circumstances. The temple had been destroyed again. There were false prophets everywhere. People were scared. People were being persecuted and dying for their beliefs. And then I realized this morning that I don't need to like John to wrap my heart and my mind around what he is trying to teach about Jesus in this text. Boy, that really helped. Like it lifts my spirit and gets air underneath it, so I'm not so bogged down in trying to get him. Because John is not the point. Jesus is the point. Redemption is the point. Love is the point. I think Debbie Blue said once, or probably more than once, that God loved us into existence. It sounds like something she would say. And even if she didn't, I don't think she would mind me thinking that she did. The first time I met with Debbie, because my sponsor told me to, back in January, though it doesn't seem possible that it was only seven months ago, she asked me something, and I don't remember what it was that she asked me, but what I responded was that I was raised intensely Catholic, because that's how I say it, intensely Catholic like going to church every Sunday and not eating meat on Fridays and 16 years of Catholic education, baptism, First Communion, confession, confirmation, the whole deal. So she says, oh, so you're already a Christian. My response, no, I am most adamantly not a Christian. So why are you talking to me? Well, why indeed? Isaiah 43, 1 through 5 says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. 
When you walk through fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Because you are precious in my sight and I love you, do not fear, for I am with you. That has been my journey since Thanksgiving this last year, constantly stepping around fear to do the next right thing. Being led in this direction back to what was mine in the first place, my birthright. This last year has been intense for me, like stripping myself bare over and over again. I wept every single Sunday for four months here at House of Mercy, and I don't cry, not usually. But I've been letting Jesus soften me, open me to my humanness, my vulnerability. I've been sober for 27 years. All my life, I've been a seeker. It's been a tough role, my life. Not really recently when you look at it from the outside. And I can see that even from the inside. It's like there's always more than one story playing at the same time. Always more than one reality existing side by side, or maybe double or triple exposed. And that's how I read scripture. That's how I read everything. There's always more than one story. In Judaism, there's an ancient tradition of Midrash, of telling the story behind the story, or within the story, or around the story that is being told. There's the black fire, which is the words on the page, and then there's the white fire, which is the page on which the words are being written. The page, the context, what is not being said, or even possibly seen at the time, is just as important as what is being said. Kind of like seeing the microscopic and the telescopic both at the same time. When I start to think about all the layers of reality, all the layers of truth, all of the layers of context, John's context, Jesus' context, mine, the Roman Empire, the U.S. Empire, my own twisted history of family violence, I start to feel like the cat in the hat on the ball with the rake and the cake and the fish in the pot. Put me down, put me down! It can quickly devolve into a mess on the floor when I try to look too closely and try to make sense of one little part or try to pull back all the way and make sense of the whole thing at the same time. My brain just about explodes when I try to fix it all in, put it all in words, make it all fit. Not really fit because I know that I will never know all there is to know. As much as I want to know and as much as I already know, there's always more to know. You know what I mean? Maybe I know what it is that I've been given to know. Maybe I have all the information that I need at any given moment. Now there's a thought. Maybe I know enough. Maybe I am enough. So I have to allow the focus to keep shifting and move with it. So the text today. The people who have been following Jesus and listening to him talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood say, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? It's part of the story that we've been hearing about over the past month. A few weeks ago, Luke talked about his witness and experience of this word, this story, this hard teaching. And last week, Russell challenged us to think and experience the flesh and blood of Jesus concretely and physically, not just metaphysically. Now, like I said, I was raised Catholic. You know, the transubstantiation and all that. 
Russell's teaching about John's teaching, about Jesus' teaching, sings to me. Maybe it's genetic memory. All those generations reaching way back into Ireland and Poland. Way back, back. It's like I'm standing with him right now, with Jesus, and reaching through him and with him towards God. And God is reaching back through Jesus towards me. If I believe that that's true, which I think that I do, then what does that mean for me today? I think that is what I was reaching for when I talked with Debbie that first time. It was what I was reaching for when I came to House of Mercy for the first time. It was what I was reaching for when I found Debbie's book and read it and knew that there was a teacher for me. There's a Buddhist saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. I am blessed with two very strong, very solid teachers of the word today. My mentor, Dawn, who was my baptism sponsor, and I can't really believe that it was only six weeks ago, and Debbie. It felt so powerful to be standing up here in between the two of them, vibrating with Christ's presence as they held it and opened it to me. The Book of Common Prayer of the Episcopal Church calls a sacrament an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. I think it's more than that, or maybe that doesn't tell the whole story. I think a sacrament like baptism, like communion, actually calls that reality into existence, makes it manifest. I think that's what Russell was saying, but you'd have to ask him, and what Jesus was teaching. That there's always more than one thing, one truth, one reality happening at the same time. Jesus is both alive and being eaten. He is both human and divine. I don't really get this man-God thing. I've read a lot of books, and I still don't get it. Though, I think that I believe it. (laughs) I once wrote a long email ranting about the unbelievability of it all. Why do I have to believe it, I asked. Debbie's response, maybe you don't have to believe it, in the sense of giving rational assent to it. Maybe you just have to follow the path that you are on and what you feel to be true in your heart. And I can feel the truth of Jesus, of the redemptive power of God's love, perfectly expressed in the full humanity of Jesus. I feel it in my breath and in my lungs and right here under my ribs. A living, breathing reality in my flesh and bones. After I participated in communion for the first time, after about 30 years, right here at House of Mercy, Debbie asked me, How's that body and blood sitting in your veins this week? And you know, it changes me. Every time I participate in communion here at House of Mercy, it changes me. I know that I could have participated in communion from the very first time I walked through the door, but I didn't because I knew that it was real and it was important. And I had to be sure that I wanted what it offered, what it meant, what it means like receiving and reclaiming and redeeming what was taken from me through family violence. In November this past year, I remembered something really important, something that I knew and lived by but didn't know that I knew and lived by. It was the big lie, and I feared that it was true. I believed that it was true, and I lived my life as if it was true. When I was four years old and my dad was abusing me, he said to me, Jesus doesn't love you. 
And I saw Jesus standing there off to the side, and he was crying. And I thought he was crying because it was true. Because I had done something so irrevocably bad that he didn't love me anymore. I was four. I didn't have any other choice but to believe what my father was telling me. He read the Bible all the time. He was important in the church. He was my dad. He would know. That's how four-year-olds think, because that's how our brains work. And he got wired right into me, the lie that I thought was the truth, for about 45 years. That's longer than the Jews wandered in the desert. That's longer than Jesus spent in human form. The first time I remember wanting to die, I was five. I tried to get to my grandma's house because I knew if I could get to her, I would be safe. But she lived about a mile away, and I couldn't make it across the busy street. This was the south side of Chicago in 1967. It's a miracle I survived it, really. The first time I tried to kill myself, I was nine. I succeeded, actually. I was a competitive swimmer. I swam the breaststroke in competition and could do two lengths of the pool underwater without coming up for air. We were at a lake, and I walked to the drop-off, just swam right to it, and dropped. I had to completely let myself go. Not swim, not fight, not do anything anymore. And it worked. I felt free. Blessed relief for a second. But something called me back, and I think Jesus called me back. I saw him again. He was standing off to the side, and he asked me to come back. He told me I had, an, I had important things to do in the kingdom, and he wanted me to make the choice to come back. He said I would be okay. So I said yes. I came back. But I was pissed. I have been so pissed for so long that I don't even know most of the time how to lay all that down. I know that fundamentally it is a case of mistaken identity. Maybe even identity theft. Mistaking my dad for God. And then mistaking God for my dad. I think in some ways, being angry kept me alive, fighting and fighting and fighting, always fighting authority, always speaking truth to power, but filled with anger and rage and hate. Oh, I learned to master the outward expression of it pretty well, but inside I was raging, almost always. And I wanted them all to pay for the violence they did to me and to my grandmothers and to all the weak and powerless. It seems kind of funny to me now in that surreal, weird kind of way that for 25 years, when I was most adamantly not a Christian, I tried to teach people who Jesus was, what he was trying to teach, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And I did pretty much live my life by the teaching of Jesus. I did learn some really good and important things from that Catholic education, from the nuns and the women who taught me how to be a loving and kind person. But did not have it for them, for the rich and the powerful, for the ones who I saw as being the winners in a system of oppression and poverty and violence. I can feel myself start to get worked up just thinking about it right now, like wanting to rage and wanting to fight. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said, 
The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. So it goes, returning violence for violence, multiplies violence, adding deeper and deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And I believe that. And I believe in the path of nonviolence. But what I know today is that nonviolence is deeper than physical. It's also spiritual. It also means not hating, not raging, not fighting against a vast machine in a way that lends its strength. Because that is what I do when I get so worked up and so angry and fight. I fought for so long and I'm so tired and I don't really know how to lay down the fight. Dawn tells me, just step around it. Just step around the powers that seek to control you. Don't lend them any of my strength, any of my substance. Jesus said to give to Caesar what is Caesar's because it doesn't matter in the kingdom. He doesn't submit to the authority of the empire when he says that. He just steps around it. That's a really hard lesson for me. The thing I really love about Jesus in the text today is that he is so human. To me, he sounds tired and sad and maybe a little lonely and afraid. He asked the disciples, do you also wish to go away? I can so connect to Jesus in the space of his vulnerability and his stripped-down, bare humanity. My heart breaks for him right here in this place, and I think that it also breaks open to him. I think that ultimately for me, Jesus teaches us what it means to be fully human, how to be the very best of who we can be in our humanness and our vulnerability. It so matters to me that Jesus was human, that he suffered and hurt and felt abandoned, because then I know that he gets it. If God knows what it feels like to be lonely and scared and a little bit discouraged through Jesus' experience, then I can trust that he gets me when I feel lonely and scared and a little bit or maybe a whole lot discouraged. And the trauma doesn't end the story. It didn't end Jesus' story, and it doesn't end my story, and it doesn't end God's story. I really believe that today in my heart and soul. I could say it before, and part of me believed it, but not like I believe it today. After choosing to get baptized again, baptized into a relationship with Christ, into a living, breathing, physical, and concrete relationship with Christ, and through him, with God. That's what he's saying in the text today. He says it actually both ways in John's Gospel. You come to God through Jesus, and you come to Jesus because God has called you to it. Like in Isaiah, I have called you by name, you are mine. Like I was reaching towards Jesus for all those years when I was trying to teach people who he was. Like I'm reaching towards God because he's reaching towards me. All those years that I thought the lie that Jesus didn't love me was the truth. All those years of trying to murder the liar to try to murder the lie. It seems bizarre to me, really, that I should be standing in this place, right here today at House of Mercy, in this place in my life today, 
Not really in a million years did I expect to be back here. I think I had lost hope. I believed all those years that there was a God because really, how can you deny that there's a power vastly beyond what I or you or anyone else could ever hope to fully comprehend? But I did not believe that God had anything really to do specifically with me. What does it mean when Jesus says to eat my flesh and drink my blood? I think he means to give it all away. To go to any lengths. To really follow the teaching. To love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and all your soul. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think for me to love myself as my neighbor because... It's a lot easier for me sometimes to love you in your humanness than to love me in my humanness. To be willing to overturn everything I thought was true, everything I cling to as right and good, everything I clutch so tightly to, everything I say I could never do or give up or believe. Redemption. Now there's a word that used to set my teeth on edge, like scraping steel on the sidewalk or the screech of wheels on the train tracks. But redemption is really about recovery, about getting back what was originally mine. The ancient meaning of redemption in the Hebrew scripture refers to the Jews returning home from exile. John says that Jesus says we need to be born from above. Maybe more accurately for me, being born from within. That place where the knowing of the living Christ is right here under my ribs. Being continuously born from within. Like I said, every time I participate in communion here at House of Mercy, it changes me. It heals a part of my loneliness. It heals a part of my fear and pain. It heals a part of my misbelief that I am broken and unredeemable, that Jesus doesn't love me. Every week when I consciously and intentionally choose to participate to receive the body and blood of Christ, I am choosing that relationship. I am choosing that connection. I am choosing that embrace. I am choosing this community, House of Mercy for sure, the broader community of believers, too. Choosing to identify and claim publicly and openly what I know to be true, that the love of God through Jesus Christ redeems and fills me with hope. Grace and mercy become physical reality rather than ideational concepts. I think God needs me. I don't think we just need him. I think he needs us too. That's what this text is about for me. So, am I staying? Yeah, I'm staying. How about you?